the History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 4. The Medieval World. Episode 5. The Rise of the Ottomans. Last time on the History of the World podcast, we spoke of the Seljuk Turks and how they originated from the Turkmen of the Oz Yabhu state and took advantage of territorial disputes in the lands of Iran and Greater Khorasan to create an empire in the Middle East during the 11th and 12th centuries. The Seljuks were converts to Islam during their rise to prominence and the remnants of the imperial Abbasid Caliphate were still being preserved in the city of Baghdad, despite no longer having any political power. The significance of the Abbasid Caliphate was that it represented the spiritual political head of Islam due to the Abbasid dynasty family links to the original Prophet Muhammad. The Seljuks were invited to take control of Baghdad by the Abbasids in order to preserve the Sunni Islam direction of the Caliphate and overthrow the preceding Shia Islam overlords. Before the arrival of Turkic peoples, the lands of the Middle East were dominated by Arabs, Persians and Anatolian Greeks, among others, and with the Turks being nomadic peoples from the steppe, they had an ability to conduct raids in all of these areas. The Seljuk Turks were a particular branch of Turks and by the 11th century Turkic peoples were spread far and wide along the northern and eastern borders of the Islamic world in many different and powerful factions. The reason why the Turks had an interest in the lands of the Anatolian Greeks is because they were rich and fertile with great naval connections to the wider world. These lands were under the control of the Byzantine Empire whose capital was based at the city of Constantinople, the modern Turkish city of Istanbul. When the Seljuk Turks were in their prime, they would expand into these territories and take them from the Byzantine Empire. It wouldn't take long for a Seljuk Turk called Suleiman ibn Katalmish to take control of this area and declare himself the Sultan of the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum an independent Turkic caliphate of Anatolia. The subject of today's episode is the Ottoman Empire, which originally rose up in these lands in the 13th century in the lands of the Seljuk Sultanate of Rum. The Ottoman Empire would stay in existence right up until the 20th century 
and its entire history is fascinating. This week, we will stay within the medieval period and only concentrate on the first couple of centuries of the Ottoman Empire. The creation of the Sultanate of Rum happened a couple of centuries before the rise of the Ottomans. During these two centuries, the lands of the Middle East were hotly disputed by many different factions and peoples from far and wide, including Arabs, Persians, Turks and Europeans. The Europeans came very quickly after the establishment of the Sultanate of Rome, and this is because this is the age of the Crusades and their journeys would take them through Anatolian territory. These particular stories will be told later in the volume. Tensions remained high between the Byzantines, who were looking to capitalise on Crusader incursions into Middle Eastern lands to reclaim lost Anatolian territory, and the Rum Seljuks, who were obviously not happy to be pushed eastwards and away from the lucrative Mediterranean seaports. Certainly throughout the 12th century, the Rum Seljuks were restricted to territories around the city of Konya, which was once a city occupied by the Hittites over two and a half thousand years earlier. It was when the Byzantines met the Rum Seljuks at the Battle of Myriokephalon in 1176 that the Byzantines found themselves defeated and put on the back foot once more as the Rum Seljuks were able to gain access to the Mediterranean Sea once again. This would enable the Rum Seljuks to cement themselves firmly in their central Anatolian lands and counteract the new threat in the east, the Khwarazmian Empire, who had taken the lands of Iran away from the Seljuks of the east. It would be the next threat from the east that would turn the Middle East upside down during the 13th century. We are talking about the arrival of the Mongols, and they would crush the Khwarazmians before advancing westwards and turning the Rum Seljuks into their vassals. The lands of the Rum Seljuks remained under Mongol vassalage until the region fragmented during the 14th century. One man of Turkmen ethnicity would take this as an opportunity to establish his own small principality in Anatolia. This small area of influence probably should have been relatively unimportant to history. But it wasn't. The Osmanla The Osmanla were a tribe of Turkmen led by a man called Osman. Osman is significant because he is the head of the dynasty that would be the beginnings of a mighty second millennium empire of both the Middle East and Europe. Osman is believed to have been a devout Muslim and as such he would happily terrorise and plunder the lands of infidels and his ambitious attitude attracted the support of many. His followers didn't necessarily have to be closely linked to him, but willing to follow him. 
However, it seems that Osman was a capable military leader and as expected with military leaders in this area from this period, their descent from the steppe-land nomads meant that their trump card was the speed of their attacks, being expert horsemen and lightly armoured. They would clash with neighbouring emirates and raid their lands. His ability to command such a diverse bunch of soldiers and cavalry was likely to aid the success of the Osmanli. Osman's capital was at the town of Sout, in the southern borderlands of the ancient Anatolian region of Bithynia, which was quite an important location strategically on the Asiatic route towards Constantinople and as such was probably in control of lands that wealthy trade caravans would have to pass through. Osman and his family line were members of the Kayat tribe, who were an offshoot of the Turkmen, who we also know are of O's origin. The Osmanla tribe are attributed to Osman, and is the etymological root of the word Ottoman so we can look to Osman as the nominal founder of the Ottoman dynasty. Osman had found himself in the town of Saud due to the fact that his father had been granted the rights of those lands. Osman was a strong leader. He appears to be a man who understood the art of leadership. As we have already mentioned, he was able to entice people of different backgrounds to follow him. He was able to keep control of his subjects and he claimed to have had a dream where his realm would have the rule over the world with the blessing of Allah. Osman would not see himself as a Seljuk Turk as his forefathers had done but as the leader of a new dynasty in a new age. Osman's centre of influence was in close proximity to the Sea of Marmara, which we have previously referred to as the Propontis, its ancient name. This meant that Constantinople was within Osmanla range, and Osman felt very confident about raiding and invading the lands of the Byzantines as a consequence. The Byzantines were suitably rattled by the Osmanla and they met in battle on the banks of the Sea of Marmara at the Battle of Baphius in 1302. The Osmanla victory was a huge blow for the Byzantines who were powerless to prevent the Osmanla capturing areas of Anatolian land from them as a consequence. With some suggesting that some of the populations of Anatolia were very welcoming of a new regime, having lost faith in the high-taxing Byzantines. The Byzantine cities of Anatolia, such as Nicaea and Nicomedia, were now under direct threat, with their connections to each other being disrupted by Osman's successes. The Byzantines were rattled by the Osmanli and reached out to other nations for a political alliance to defend their lands and cities from the Osmanli. 
some of the neighbouring nations refused to support the Byzantines, possibly realising their weakness and the very real and virile threat of the Osmanla. Osman did some great work in establishing the Osmanla, synonymous with the Ottomans, as a powerful Anatolian entity, threatening the Anatolian cities of the Byzantines, and with ambitions of capturing cities such as Nicomedia, Nicaea and Bursa. However, as he reached an old age, he suffered from great pain in his foot, possibly gout, and was unable to campaign any longer. The military ambition of the Ottomans was taken on by his son, Orhan, who is reported to have conquered the important Byzantine city of Bursa, while his father lay sick in his bed. Orhan was to rush back to his father to provide him with the good news. When Osman died in the 1320s, he nominated his son, Orhan, as his successor, and Orhan would oversee the transport of his father's body to the new Ottoman capital city, the captured city of Bursa. It would be a matter of time before Orhan would take the cities of Nicaea and Nicomedia, taking advantage of the mess that the Byzantine Empire was in at this point. Internal affairs within the Byzantine Empire were fraught as the defence of their realm was exhausting their wealth. As we've seen time and time again when a nation is on its knees, then dissension among the senior ranks of that nation surface as prominent figures look to overthrow failing rulers or attempt to take matters into their own hands in order to save the nation. The Byzantine Empire was no different. And this situation was not only exacerbated by the Ottomans, but also eventually involved the Ottomans. The new Byzantine emperor in 1341 was a child called John V Palaeologus, who was operating under the regency of a man called John Cantacuzenos. While Cantacuzenos was out of Constantinople, a movement led by the mother of the child emperor John V, called Anna of Savoy, seized control of the city and this started a civil war between the followers of John Cantacuzenos and the followers of Anna of Savoy. The two sides of the desperate empire reached out to neighbouring realms for support. The Serbians would accept the invitation and some of their spoils, which would include securing the lands of the Balkan Peninsula, including Epirus, but excluding Athens and the Peloponnese. Bulgarian involvement from the north meant that the Byzantine realm was restricted to an area of Thrace now that the Ottomans themselves had secured all former Byzantine lands of northern Anatolia. The deposed regent John Cantacuzenos was able to overcome his opponents and be declared as the Byzantine Emperor in his own right in 1347 and rule as John VI. 
But things would never remain stable in the pressurised Byzantine Empire. And while defending his position, John would turn to the Ottomans under the rule of Orhan for support against the now mature child emperor John V, who was supported by the Serbians. This would be an invitation for the Ottomans to do battle on European soil. Despite the fact that the situation in the Byzantine Empire brought the Serbians and Ottomans into conflict with each other, both the Serbians and the Ottomans saw this more as a justification of an opportunity to expand their own realms. It is highly unlikely that the Ottomans cared much for the fact that their Byzantine ally, John VI, was defeated during the Byzantine Civil War of the 1350s, as they had their own expansionist ambitions on European soil anyway. The Ottomans had been invited to cross the Dardanelles by John VI during the war in the first place, and when the Ottomans were successful, they snubbed John VI's request to return back to Anatolia. So now, the Ottomans were in control of the Gallipoli Peninsula, which we referred to as Thracian Chersonese during the ancient volumes. After crossing the Dardanelles, which we referred to as the Hellespont during the ancient volumes, and therefore had control of the sea link from the Mediterranean Sea into the Sea of Marmara, a sea which we referred to as the Propontis during the ancient volumes. So now the Ottomans would have a considerable foothold in Europe, and this would open the doorway to a significant Turkic and Islamic expansion into Europe that we can still recognise in today's European world. Europe It seems that Orhan did use the lessons of bureaucracy from previous Turkic nations such as those of the Seljuks in order to ensure that his expanding empire had an infrastructure for success. Now that the Ottomans were in Gallipoli, they would look at further opportunities to expand. The Ottoman army was headed by elite infantry called Janissaries. The Janissaries were trained warriors who were often slave children who were groomed for a life of military service and they are known to have emerged around the time of Ottoman presence in Europe. The Ottomans first targeted the cities of Thrace in a bid to isolate Constantinople. The Ottomans likely had genuine ambitions to completely eliminate the Byzantine Empire, but the capital city of Constantinople had many advantages when it came to defence. Surrounded on its eastern side by water and on its western side by strong walls, it made sense for the Ottomans to take Thracian lands in a bid to try to slowly suffocate the city and cut it off from the rest of the world. The issue with taking Thracian cities was that it would be of a huge concern to both 
the Serbians and the Bulgarians. The Ottomans took control of the city of Didimotiko in 1359, which meant that they had control of Thracian lands inland from the Gallipoli Peninsula. This certainly concerned the Serbians, who were already at odds with the Ottomans since their respective involvements in the Byzantine Civil War. By now, Orhan was an elderly man who had successfully ruled the Ottomans for well over 30 years, but his time to depart from the world at the age of 80 came in 1362. His son would rule as Murad I, and if Ottoman opponents believed that the passing of the old sultan would create an advantage for them, then they would be mistaken. Murad would take the city of Adrianople, the city named for the Roman emperor called Hadrian, who was alive over 1,200 years previous. Murad would rename the city Edirne, which is the city's modern Turkic name, and this would be in order to take any kind of Roman identity away from the city, so that the city would feel more closely linked to the Ottomans than the Byzantines, although certainly not immediately, over a shorter amount of time than if they had not. Further to this, Murad would make Adirne his new capital so that he could centralise the Ottoman position in order to better challenge their European opponents. By this time, the Byzantines were in a desperate bind. Despite the fact that Constantinople was a centre of Christianity and its very Christian identity was now at risk. This was not enough to convince the Roman Catholic Church in Avignon and led by the Pope to save Constantinople. John V, once the child emperor, now in his 30s, travelled to Rome and converted from the Eastern Christian Orthodox Church to Roman Catholicism in a bid to save Constantinople. The Serbians were suitably concerned about the Ottoman threat in Europe and tried to seek an alliance with the Byzantines and the Bulgarians in order to fend off the Turks. However, both Serbia and Bulgaria suffered from a similar issue to the Byzantines in that there was too much infighting in each of their empires and this meant a lack of well-needed solidarity against these rampant Ottomans. The Serbs still saw an opportunity to strike out at the Ottomans when the Sultan Murad I returned to Anatolia. The result was a disaster for the Serbs. They did not anticipate an Ottoman attack on their camp, and were ill-prepared as a consequence. Both the Serbian king Vukashin and his brother were killed alongside thousands of Serbian soldiers at the Battle of Maritza, where it was reported that the Maritza River ran scarlet with Serbian blood. From military bases such as the former Bulgarian city of Plovdiv, which was now in Ottoman hands, the Ottomans would launch military offences against both the Bulgarians and the Serbians 
venturing deep into their lands in the immediate aftermath of Maritza. The Ottomans would see their invasions as justified as a nation of Ghazis doing battle against infidels. The Ghazis being the name of the warrior Muslims entering battle in the name of Islam. From this point on, the Bulgarians really didn't stand a chance because their empire was fragmented. Two brothers were fighting for supremacy over Bulgarian lands and cities, such as Sofia. One of the brothers, the Tsar Ivan Shishman, offered himself as a vassal to the Ottoman Empire and even offered his sister to the Sultan Murad I for his wife. Murad accepted this generous but desperate offer. But in the 1380s, the Ottomans still chose to besiege Sofia. The leader of the siege was a man called Lala Shahin Pasha. And the significance of Lala Shahin was that he was the man responsible for the brutal and clever victory against the Serbs at the Battle of Maritza. And he was a key leader in the Ottoman conquests of the cities of Didimotejo, Adrianople and Plovdiv. Lala Shahin almost failed in besieging Sofia, but he eventually managed to succeed and this would present an important opportunity for the Ottomans to separate land access between Serbia and Bulgaria, which they duly took advantage of. The Battle of Kosovo With the Byzantines and the Bulgarians sufficiently weakened over the years of the late 14th century, the Ottomans would turn their focus on the Serbians. The Sultan Murad I would opt to be directly involved in the confrontation, and this could be because the threat of the Serbians had become more serious under the leadership of a man called Lazar Rebuljanovic, who could be considered of aristocratic stock. Prince Lazar had taken control of the Serbian military affairs as a de facto ruler, not necessarily supported by everybody, but certainly responsible for an upturn in Serbian fortunes. The two armies would head to a place called the Field of the Blackbirds, in Serbian called Poljekosova, and also the place from which the modern country of Kosovo receives its name. With the Ottoman Sultan in attendance, his retinue of Janissary bodyguards would also be in attendance. Kosovo became a place of important cultural significance following this battle, named the Battle of Kosovo, which took place in 1389. The long-serving and glorious Sultan Murad was killed at the battle and it was down to his son Bayezid, also known as Bayezid the Thunderbolt, to finish the job. Prince Lazar of Serbia was also killed at the battle and although we have no contemporary evidence confirming which side were victorious, we know that the Serbian losses at the battle were crippling for the empire going forward. The Battle of Kosovo is a proud moment of Serbian history, when Serbia resisted the mighty Ottomans. 
The Orthodox Christian Church venerated Prince Lazar for the brave defence of his lands against Islamic oppression, and he is considered a martyr due to the glorification but unsubstantiated account of his death, where Prince Lazar willingly gave his life to guarantee the Serbs a passageway to the kingdom of heaven. This is generally referred to as the Kosovo myth, which is a firm cornerstone of modern Serbian nationalism. It also claims that a Serbian knight called Milos Obilic crept into the tent of the Ottoman Sultan Murad I and assassinated him in a heroic act which may have inspired a young Bosnian Serb called Gavrilo Princip to assassinate the Austrian Archduke Franz Ferdinand over 500 years later on the day of the Feast of St Vitus, who was a Christian martyr. The date being significant as it is the translated date of the Battle of Kosovo. In the 21st century, Kosovo, an iconic land of Serbian nationalism, went through a bitter feud with Serbia to claim its own national independence. And despite Kosovo being the site of a great iconic Christian martyrdom, Kosovo is an overwhelmingly Muslim-majority country today. The aftermath of this battle saw Bayezid the Thunderbolt take control of the Ottoman Empire and he wanted to waste no time in taking control of all the lands of the Byzantines, Serbians and Bulgarians and turning it all into the lands of the territory of the Ottomans. The Serbs accepted that they were under the suzerainty of the Ottomans following their defeat at Kosovo, but the Bulgarians still believed that they had something to fight for. Coupled with this, the fact that the European nations beyond the Balkans were now increasingly concerned about Islamic expansion and they would soon feel that it was time to do something. The Hungarians were the next major kingdom on the front line of Christian Europe and they would look to fellow Christian Europeans for military support in an inevitable conflict. Armies from far and wide would join a crusade against the Ottomans, supporting the Hungarians, Bulgarians and Byzantines in their resistance. The Crusader alliance met the Ottomans at the Battle of Nicopolis on the banks of the Danube River in 1396 and the result was an Ottoman victory. There were considerable losses on both sides however. Timur. The Ottoman victory under Bayezid the Thunderbolt at the Battle of Nicopolis would have been hugely concerning for Christian Europe as a whole with many wondering how much damage the Ottomans could do to the Christian nations that it encountered. It seemed that the Ottomans had the power to conquer entire nations so it was not obvious where the limit of Ottoman expansion could be. However, it was at this point that Ottoman fortunes changed and it was not on its European front. A similar powerful movement was conquering lands to the Ottoman east with worrying efficiency. 
the Ottomans managed to amalgamate the peoples of Anatolia under its rule, and this would bring them to the western borders of the Timurid Empire. The Timurids were led by a man called Timur, whose bloodline came from the same ancestry as the rulers of the Mongol Empire, and as such, Timur would see himself as the next great Mongol ruler. However, his name has been westernised as Tamerlane, as this is actually caused by the use of a Persian insult renaming him Timur Leng in their culture. Leng is translated to lame, but Timur was far from being lame as he took control of all of the lands of ancient Persia, pushing the mighty Delhi Sultanate of India deep into the subcontinent and bringing them to the Ottoman border in Anatolia. The inevitable battle between Bayezid the Thunderbolt and Timur would come in the year 1402 at the Battle of Ankara. The result of the Battle of Ankara was devastating for the Ottomans. The Ottomans had enjoyed being the bully boys of the late 14th century, but they were on the receiving end this time. The Timurids scored a great victory over the Ottomans and Bayezid the Thunderbolt was captured after fleeing the battlefield. He would die in Timurid captivity, having only reached his 40s. Some of the Ottoman allies in Anatolia defected to the Timurid side and now the Ottomans were under serious threat. Fortunately for the Ottomans, Timur would switch his focus eastwards towards China, but the Ottoman Empire spiralled into civil war following this shocking defeat and death of their sultan. Resurgence The succession crisis of the Ottoman Empire lasted for a number of years and was excited by the Byzantines who were enjoying a rare opportunity to cause problems for their bitter enemy. Bayezid's son Mehmed I overcame the challenge of his own brothers to become the sultan of a fragmented Ottoman sultanate and his own 17-year-old son would come to rule as Murad II after the death of his father in 1421. Murad II would quickly look to strike out at the Byzantine capital of Constantinople, putting it under siege in order to punish the Byzantines for continually meddling in Ottoman politics. The very weak Byzantines were only able to weather this siege due to Murad being distracted by affairs elsewhere. The Ottoman position back in Europe remained somewhat unchanged since the Ottomans had ruined Serbia and Bulgaria and resisted a Christian crusade against them. As Ottoman power started to rebuild, another crusade was organised in support of the Hungarians against the Ottomans. It would be the Kingdom of Poland who would offer the greatest support to Hungary on this occasion, and the culmination of the crusade was at the Battle of Varna in the year 1444. The Ottomans scored a huge victory over the crusaders and sent them back west empty-handed. The Hungarians and Polish continued to do battle with the Ottomans, but it was all to no avail. The Ottomans were back, and looked more threatening than ever. 
surely it would only be a matter of time before they conquered Constantinople. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode regarding the rise of the Ottomans. And that really brings us to an end of this series on the Islamic rise in Asiatic lands. And uh, certainly the culmination of this is when the Ottomans crossed into Europe and uh, they were the really the, the most threatening power to venture into Europe probably since the, uh, since the Umayyads. Uh, crossed the Straits of Gibraltar into uh, the old Roman province of Hispania, now modern-day Spain. And uh, really, this is a very iconic period in history where we see so much of what uh, we look at today being formulated and the, the Muslim presence in uh, Balkan Europe, that kind of thing, uh, which is still a very important uh, legacy of this period of history to this very day so very interesting story of the ottomans and of course uh in uh, volumes uh, five and six the ottomans will feature quite heavily as well as their history plays out but certainly for volume four that's it for the ottomans and uh, next week we'll be going right the way back to the uh, the start of the medieval period and uh, to another area of the world i'll tell you a little bit more about that later the Ancient World Cup. So here we go again. The Ancient World Cup. The competition whereby we've thrown 64 ancient teams into a hat. They've all been drawn into 16 groups of four teams. And each week, one of those groups is being played out. The way that we play them out is that we put them down to the vote. They're on the History of the World podcast discussion forum, on our Facebook page, on our Twitter page as well. You can vote anywhere on those three forums. And uh, the results are counted at the end of the week. And the top two teams will advance through to the knockout stages that will take place later on in 2022. The bottom two teams will be gone. So, this week we had Group D and uh, the four teams were the Syracusans, the Celtiberians, and the Cushites, and uh, also the Franks were in there. And um, it may come as no surprise to anyone, to anyone who's followed this week's competition that the Franks were the runaway winners. Um, they took a huge sixty-nine percent of the vote. Um, which is the highest percentage that we've had. And um, I don't think any team so far, um, even the ancient Egyptians, have um, taken um, more votes than the rest of the teams um, put together. So they, they've really sort of got a majority victory there um, for the first time. But uh, well done to the Franks. Uh, we lost the Syracusans, who only had 3% of the votes, uh, so the poor old Syracusans and uh, Aristotle with his uh, trying to trying to valiantly defend his city with his Archimedes claw, um, trying to desperately capsize those Roman vessels. It hasn't worked for him this week, and uh, the Syracusans are out of the competition. Which leaves us two other teams: the Celtiberians uh, of Spain and Portugal. 
and the Kushites of uh, the Upper Nile, sort of the Sudan, lands of the Sudan. Um, and uh, it, I can announce that the, the team that finished in second place and who will be advancing to the later stages of the tournament are the Kushites. They've made it through with 15% of the vote. It was very, very, very tight indeed. But we've now got an African team into the um, into the uh, next phase that aren't the ancient Egyptians. That's great. Uh, the Celt Iberians, we've lost them, um, unfortunately. That uh, indigenous uh, sort of his, people of Hispania, the Roman province of Hispania, um, they got 13% of the vote and were narrowly narrowly defeated so we've lost them so unfortunately no more Syracusans no more Celtiberians but the Franks and the Kushites have advanced into the next round so this week is going to be Group E this coming week Group E and the teams that are in that group uh, firstly we've got the Neo-Sumerians who um, were the they were the Sumerians who rose up uh, from the city of Ur um, and um, they the, to, to distinguish them from uh, the the epic of Gilgamesh they were after that time and after the Akkadians um, uh, after the Akkadian dynasty fizzled out uh, this was the first the third dynasty of Ur um, and um, they were the the great uh, neo-sumerians who built that uh, incredible ziggurat um, and uh, probably the greatest ziggurat of the of the uh, of the Sumerian world, the Mesopotamian world. Um, also in this group, we've got the Alans, who made one of the more astonishing journeys across Europe. Um, the they were nomadic Iranians. Um, who were pushed um, out of their lands by the Huns, uh, with with many of them migrating across the entire width of Europe and ending up right over in uh, the west of the Iberian Peninsula. So probably one of the greater um, uh, ancient migrations that we've seen. Um, we've also got the Phoenicians, who are the ancestors of the Carthaginians, who unfortunately were knocked out in Group B. Perhaps their ancestors can do a little bit better, those timber-producing uh, seafarers who um, who made great advances in, in mercantile sort of trading, maritime mercantile trading, um, in the, like sort of the... Um, the cross over into the first millennium BCE. And uh, finally, we've also got those Hittites who um, are very relevant ancestrally to the story of uh, what we're talking about now, the Anatolian Peninsula. The Hittites were really the the first well-known uh, imperial force to, uh, to dominate these lands in the second millennium BCE. They were also one of the first... Um, the first societies that we know of that uh, mastered ironworking in the absence of a, a healthy bronze trade. So there we go, Group E this week, uh, Neo-Sumerians, the Alans, the Phoenicians and the Hittites. So as soon as you see those polls, don't forget to start voting. 
listener messages and reviews. Now, I should say that if you do want to support the History of the World podcast, you can do so. Uh, just go to the History of the World podcast com website click on the patreon link and sign up to make a monthly contribution help me to buy those books and equipment that make this podcast as good as it can possibly be and uh, when you do make a monthly contribution or any kind of contribution to be fair um, you are um, automatically inducted into the history of the world podcast illuminati which is quite an exclusive little club and we've got some new members to um, welcome in this week, we've got Ellen Greenspan, Glenn Schmidt, Bobby Vaughan, uh, Jordan Holly Foster and Justin Lee, all of which are now lifelong members of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. Thank you so much uh, for supporting the project and helping me to keep it going. It really does make a, a big difference and uh, it really is motivating. So thank you so much indeed. Let's get on to some listen, listener messages. David Hannon has written in and put, Dear Chris, after discovering your podcast around a year ago while casually looking around for something to listen to on my way to work on my long drives, uh, I am now hooked. I, I've always loved history and, like yourself, have devoured many books, webs and videos devoted to numerous aspects of world history. I'm passionate about history in general, but especially the ancient and classical world. So the first three volumes of the podcast have been right up my street. I'm looking forward to starting the medieval world with you as I finally just about caught up with the podcast through these last 12 months. I finally made the jump to become a patron as I feel your work, ambition and attitude more than deserve a bit of my hard-earned cash. Also, I love the accent as a fellow Essex boy myself, born in Chadwell Heath, and raised in Witten, it feels like I'm listening to one of my mates, which is especially comforting as I've lived in Spain for the last 20 years and haven't seen much of them with all this COVID malarkey going on. By the way, if you ever feel felt like making the podcast in Spanish, I'm 100% bilingual and be more than happy to be the voice of Chris and Hot World in Espanol. Uh, keep up the great work. Uh, David Hannon. Thank you very much, David. Very good email and uh, nice to speak to a fellow Essex boy. Uh, what, do you know what? I've, come, I've lived in Essex all my life and, and I don't even know if we've got a proper uh, uh, demonym uh, for Essex, Essexonians or something like that, maybe. I don't know, but I'll, I'll have to look that up. Uh, Jordan Holly has uh, written in and put... Um, Hi Chris, I'm a 22-year-old anthropology student at Arizona State University. This email has been a long time coming. I've been listening to your podcast for at least two years. I love the way that you organise your information and the thoughtful and speculative manner you keep as you present it. Honestly, your podcast has played a huge role in some major decisions I've made in my life. In the past few years, I began my college career in 2017 at a local Tennessee college. Uh, and I thought I wanted to pursue a degree in political science. Um, I I wanted to, um, I, I, well, I thought that I could change the way things work here in the US. Um, a little bit of political talk there, I won't go into that, but... Uh, as I was working nearly full-time to support myself as well as attending school, I moved a bit slower 
Um, I'm currently in my last years of studies, nearly five years in. I found your podcast at the end of 2018, beginning of 2019, just as I was about halfway through my general studies. I found myself transported to all the places that you talked about. Alderweire Gorge, the Ice Ages, Chattelhuyuk, and others. When I focused on the world as a political scientist, I felt angry but provoked to act. Uh, when I listened to your podcast and focused on the world as a historian, I felt joy and wonder. I quickly realised what my real passion was and also how tiring it would be to be so angry all the time. I would much rather spend my time learning about myself as a human and what brings us together instead of what separates us. Um, uh, I'm just going to skip forward there. Um, I listened to your podcast through Spotify and just for this year it says I've listened to 112 episodes for a total of 5,038 minutes. It sa- that sounds um, monumental, doesn't it? Um, absolutely monumental amount of minutes, but I don't know. I mean, I suppose if you listen to the episodes, you, you're going to accrue that, that kind of that kind of number aren't you I suppose um, I'm sending you all of my goodwill and gratitude I hope that you are well and have a great holiday Jordan thank you Jordan very kind message and also thank you for your donation I know that you're a History of the World podcast Illuminati member now so uh, thank you so much uh, and uh, who else have I got I've got Cameron as well uh, who's put um Hey, mate, love your work and the podcast. I love listening and learning and your enthusiasm for history makes your podcast one of the best to follow. I must say, I most love series two, The Ancient World, the most. I usually stick to medieval history, so I had no idea the ancient era was so busy and civilised and interconnected, so thank you for enlightening me. If I could give one critique, however... Please, please, please change back the intro music for Series 4. I loved the original intro music with its deep and ethereal tones, but now Series 4 intro sounds like a violin played by angry bees and mozzies. Apart from that, keep up the great work and stay curious. Look after yourself during these crazy times. Looking forward to Series 4 and beyond. Cam, well, what does everyone else think of the uh, of the theme music for for volume four i mean someone did promise me a number of months ago that they would offer me a version of my own theme music uh, and it and it never came to fruition so i don't know where that happened so you ended up with the uh, angry bees and mozzies version unfortunately which uh it doesn't appear to have uh excited cam too much but what do you think what do you think of the uh, the new uh, the new theme music and and if you don't like it what was your favourite write in and let me know uh, reviews let's go over to reviews Glenn S0113 from the USA has put outstanding podcast I've been listening to the, the podcast for about two months I started on volume one episode one and I'm now up to volume three episode 40 each episode is filled with fascinating content and Chris does an amazing job of producing and presenting. Between the content itself, Chris's Cockney accent, speed of speaking and his diction, uh, Chris keeps the listener engaged from beginning to end. Without a doubt, this is one of the best history podcasts that I've run across. Very kind, Glenn. Very kind indeed. Um, BVFGJN from the USA has put fantastic bravo. Five stars. Thank you. And uh, 12 Cole D has put what an interesting story. Humans have been through so much. Chris describes 
what happened in the past. Thank you. All very kind reviews. Um, Rob Lever wrote in, uh, he just sent me a message through Facebook saying, Good day, mate. Wanted, just wanted to say how much I'm enjoying your podcast. I'm up to the Hunter Gatherer episode and have noticed a more relaxed conversationalist tone in your deliveries, uh, which I quite like. I look forward to listening to the Rome episodes. Love your work, mate. Um, well, I'll tell you what, there's plenty of them. There's plenty of them, aren't there? Rome episodes. Uh, um, and um, it's, well, I, we've got to, uh, actually, funnily enough, we've got to go back in, in time um, and continue that story of, of Roman culture because it didn't end with the fall of the Western Roman Empire. Of course, the Byzantines uh, considered themselves as the Roman Empire. They, they, for them, the Roman Empire didn't end, and they were still the Romans. Their, their heritage and their ancestry they uh, goes all the way back to the days of uh, Augustus and uh, and Trajan and Hadrian and uh, and and even before that to Julius Caesar and Marius and Sulla. They considered that to be part of their national history. So. Uh, we've got to do that. We've got to go back uh, to the story of the Byzantines. And so big is that story that it's really going to probably take up, a, uh, you know, about seven episodes, I, I would imagine. The first four will be the chronological journey of the Byzantines. And it's a real, uh, you know, I mean, if you love your history, you're going to love the story of the Byzantine Empire. So next week is going to be part one of the Byzantine Empire. It's uh, I, I really do hope that you enjoy it as much as I enjoyed writing it. So um, without further ado, uh, we're going to sign off for this week. And uh, I thank you for listening. Look forward to next week where we talk about the Byzantines. So until next week, be good. The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Please consider making a financial contribution by going to the historyoftheworldpodcast.com website and clicking on the Patreon link. Email the show at historyoftheworldpodcast at mail.com And don't forget to join our social media at Facebook, Twitter, Instagram and Tumblr. See you next time.